Welcome to Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our show's archive for your binge listening pleasure. My co-host, Matt Robeson, writes for The Alternet, and he is the proprietor of a blog, the moreperfectunionforum.com, where he talks deep, deep thoughts about politics and the state of our union. We're also a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes, so you can find us anywhere in the known world, day or night. Uh, we are talking today with our special guest, Nick Wright, who is an associate professor of biostatistics at the University of Massachusetts. He received his PhD in biostatistics from John Hopkins, where he also did his postdoc training in infectious disease epidemiology. And if you think that might be relevant today, you're right. Now, interestingly, Nick graduated in 2001 from Carleton College with a BA in English and before enrolling in the biostatistics PhD program at Johns Hopkins, he worked for Harper's Magazine in New York City. He worked in San Francisco for the city car share and he was part of the Framingham Heart Study. Uh, Nick is the proprietor of the Reich Lab, which focuses on developing statistical methods and tools for data arising from infectious disease settings. In 2019, they were designated as a CDC-funded influenza forecasting center of excellence. They use statistics, data science, epidemiology to gain a better understanding of the complexities of infectious disease dynamics, and their work has been featured in the New York Times, 538, The Economist, and the Boston Globe on National Public Radio, PBS NewsHour, and now on WKXL, Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson. Nick, welcome to the show. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So I've got a lot of questions. Uh, the first one is um, that uh, there was an announcement out of the White House yesterday that no longer would epidemiolo epidemiological records and statistics be sent to the CDC. Apparently, it's all going straight to uh, the president's uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken bucket. Uh, what's going on with that? What is that about? And, and do you think that creates any issues uh, for the country? So this was a surprising decision. And from my understanding, this impacts how hospitals are reporting data to the federal government. Uh, this, this system has been far from perfect for years. And there's always been a system where data, hospitals have sort of a choice of where to report data to. And in the last few months with COVID, they've been given a choice of reporting either directly to CDC or into one of a few other systems. I think this, this edict that has come down in these last few days has directed hospitals to report only to this other system that is part of HHS and not part of CDC. I think um, it feels to me like a political decision. I mean, obviously the CDC is the sort of nonpartisan uh, a political entity, which I think has sort of worked against them in this hyper-partisan uh, environment that we've seen. Um, I think 
you know, it's the, the power of this data has been taken out of the hands of a group at CDC that's been working for over 10 years to develop the right systems to collect this data from hospitals. There's a lot of quality control issues that they understand really well about how these data are reported. You know, you have to weed out duplicate reports and you have to make sure the ICD-9 codes are being reported correctly and all these sorts of things. And uh, we're losing a lot of institutional memory about how that stuff works by taking it out of their, out of their hands. Let me follow up on that and ask uh, about the larger prospect of what you do and your expertise. Can you help our audience understand the importance of data and modeling when you have an epidemic, a pandemic like this, and, and you obviously have applied your expertise to flu, to influenza, and now are applying it to COVID-19. What does it help public health experts to do? How does it help us to fight diseases like this, the, the modeling and deep data analytics that you provide? So I think that having up-to-date data and having models that can effectively use that data both give us a better picture of what's happening right now and potentially give us a glimpse of what might be happening in upcoming weeks. I think, uh, so, and I, I think this is actually more of a challenge than people realize, even just the what's happening right now part. Um, you know, this was a huge challenge in the early weeks of COVID-19 of just trying to get a sense of how many people are, are infected, how many new cases are happening right now. I mean, even still to this day, we don't really have a good estimate of how, I mean, there are plenty of estimates. Are any of them good? I'm not really sure of, um, of, you know, how many people are newly infected every day. That's a really important question. And we don't really have a specific answer. We have reasonable estimates that have good uncertainty around them, but it's, um, uh, but it's hard to know. And so these, these data that are coming out that are telling us how many new hospitalizations are there, how many tests are we doing, how many of those tests are positive, all of those different streams of data are, are sort of helping give us different indirect glimpses about this underlying truth that's really hard to observe. Um, so I, I think all of these data are really, are, are helpful, but again, there are these sort of fundamentally indirect measures of these things that we really do want to observe precisely. Um, you know, and the, so that's sort of a, a, hopefully sort of a broad question, a broad answer about why the data is important. I think, uh, you know, a good model could take data like this, how many tests are being conducted on a given day, how many are coming back positive, how many people are being hospitalized, on a day-to-day -day basis, how many people are dying on a day-to-day -day basis. Each of these are data that are, that are markers of sort of progression of disease. And so obviously the testing and cases, those are sort of new cases being reported. Those are sort of the sort of earliest marker of a, of a, as a case is happening, then somebody would become hospitalized. Then a few weeks later, if they're gonna die, they will die. Um, so each of you know, those sort of increasingly lagging indicators using hospitalizations and deaths, but a good model can take advantage of all of these sources of information and say, you know, uh, 
test results that are coming back today, those are indicative of infections that were happening a few days to a week ago. Hospitalizations are indicative of infections that were happening one week ago or two weeks ago. Deaths are indications of new infections that were happening three or four weeks ago. And a good model can sort of take all that information and try to reconstruct both what's happening right now, what was happening a few weeks ago, and then project forward and try to help us figure out what's gonna be happening in a few weeks. So um, if I'm correct, Nick, you were one of the leading researchers advising the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Remember that uh, early on in March, um, for our listeners, uh, they may remember that far back when the president and, and, and some doctors and other folks were standing at the podium uh, presenting themselves as the Coronavirus Task Force. Uh, giving us uh, um, what uh, they they said was information uh, and often seemed political. But but you advised about how you modeled the disease, how it incubates and spreads. And obviously, uh, there's been an awful lot learned uh, about the disease every week, every day. I mean, there's it's it's there. Uh, there are many uh, really wonderful, hardworking scientists in various disciplines uh, trying to learn about this disease. What, what have you and other researchers that you're in touch with uh, learned in the last three months or so uh, about how the disease works and, and how has that changed, if it has, your work around modeling? But, okay, a lot of good questions in there. So, um, you know, I'll start by saying that, you know, science is a, inherently a slow moving and uncertain enterprise, right? You learn things by studying things carefully over a long period of time and generating hypotheses, refuting them with new data, finding data that is sort of consistent with what you've seen. Um, but it's, it's something that does not operate in, you know, seconds and 250 characters and days and weeks. It's a, it's a slow moving, slow release process. And I feel like that, um, you know, the, the process has been accelerated in these last few months when there's been such a rush to try to learn about this new threat. Um, and I think we have learned a lot, but there is still so much that we're trying to piece together um, and, uh, and still a lot of uncertainty about really key things, a key piece of information about this virus. You know, we have a reasonable estimate about how long it takes to incubate once you've been infected, how long might it be till you show symptoms. There were some early estimates that suggested, you know, on average, that might be a week, but it might stretch out to two weeks and it might be as short as a couple of days. And that has sort of remained the conventional wisdom um, and that those numbers inform this idea of you should self quarantine for two weeks. That's based on this incubation period. Um, um, you know, I think, but, you know, there's still just so many key things that we don't understand. And I think for me right now, one of the, one of the most salient features that I wish we knew more about was this question about the role of kids and how, um, how susceptible they are, 
how much they spread. You know, everything we know about respiratory diseases and other coronaviruses is that kids play such a critical role in disease spread. They're snotty, they're, they can't control their hands, they're always wiping their nose, touching things. I mean, this is kids, kids spread their little disease vectors. And, um, and, uh, and, and yet, and that's like true for all, for influenza, it's true for all the common cold viruses, including other coronaviruses. And yet for this, the evidence is just really mixed and it's not clear yet if it's really because kids aren't playing as big a role or maybe they're not getting as sick and we're just not picking it up as much. And I think, I think we just don't have a, a good scientific consensus on this yet. So let me just follow up because my uh, really smart co-host, Matt Robeson, has just published an article uh, on the alternate, which uh, I found fascinating. I have passed it around and shared it uh, because in uh, his analysis, uh, something that Matt does really well, he takes on essentially the four or four major arguments for why should we open schools. And, and, and it's a mix of uh, science and economics and politics um, in all these various um, uh, various arguments in favor of opening schools. And Matt, in the article, which I recommend everybody read, he goes through them one by one to 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 test the arguments, test the analysis. And in the end, um, uh, I think the, the, he concludes that there is enough uncertainty um, and risk around all this so that uh, the, his basic conclusion, one which I agree with and apparently many do, not necessarily from an epidemiological standpoint, agree that it's too risky to have kids in school. Now, there are countries around the globe that have been able to send their kids back to school. I think Israel is one where they have uh, reasonably successfully um, thought to send kids back to school. Ha have you thought about that issue? And as a, it's kind of a follow-up to what you just said about kids as disease vectors and uh, centers for the spread of infectious diseases. What, what are you thinking about, about that issue, which is uh, very current as we're, uh, as we're talking today? Yeah. Um, you know, I think this is such a complicated issue. Um, I, I'll note that um, one of my close colleagues and collaborators, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, who works at the, uh, the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security, was on a panel convened by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, East, a report uh, so guidance for on K-12 education responding to COVID-19. So there are a lot of good um, recommendations in there that I think have been informed by people coming at this question from a lot of different, uh, a, a lot of different angles. Um, um, I haven't had a chance to read it over in great detail, but I, I think in, in my mind, one of the things that is so important in this is to, is to, 
is to think about this outbreak. At, you know, there there is a sort of global aspect to this, especially in the sort of today's connected world where everybody's traveling, and you know, you have to, you know, all these places are sort of physically interconnected by people who are moving around. At the same time, um, outbreaks are are local. They happen when an individual interacts with another individual in that in that same space, and one of the things that we saw early on in this outbreak, I think we continue to see is that, um, that at the county to county level, you can be having really incredibly different experiences, even with sort of adjacent counties. And I think this is maybe particularly pronounced in places where you have really rural and really urban places that are close together. Um, so I'm, and I've been aware of this as a personal on a on a personal level, not in, not with my scientist hat on, but just as a person living and trying to digest the news today. I'm, it's really hard to ignore the crush of negative news about the surge of cases and the uptick in deaths and all of this. Um, and as somebody who lives in a fairly rural area in Western Mass, where we are, get, you know, my county is seeing a less than five new cases a day on average. Um, it's hard to know how to how to reconcile um, how to reconcile that those numbers with a sort of blanket response to shut down schools. So uh, this is off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL. We're talking to Professor Nick Wright, uh, Professor of Biostatistics at UMass. We're deep into a discussion about modeling and epidemiology and touching on some of the hot issues around uh, opening schools. Um, we're going to have to take a short break. We may come back and uh, give some more thought to this question when we do. We're going to hear from our sponsors. Don't go away for a more fascinating discussion on Off the Record. We'll be right back. We're back. It's off the record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson here on WKXLAM and FM streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. We are a podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. And we're talking with Nick Wright, the Associate Professor of Biostatistics at UMass, whose work on epidemiology and modeling is a very important part of our scientific research in the midst of a global pandemic. When we left our last segment, I unfortunately stopped Nick's excellent analysis of what was going on around the question of should we open schools or should we not? Uh, no, understanding that it's a complex issue, I want to make sure I give you a chance to fill in any of the blanks that I cut you off from. Uh, so if you have any more to add, uh, we'd be happy to hear it because I know that the people who are listening here are wondering, here we are, it's mid-July, we're coming up in a few weeks to some kind of school opening, not opening, hybrid, some kids going, some kids not, how are school districts going to afford it, how many kids get on the bus, how, what happens to the teachers, does everybody wear a mask all day? And I'll just tell you, Nick, I know that you're down in the great Commonwealth of Massachusetts, but our 
our governor uh, and the Department of Education have just issued their guidance. And their guidance is, well, we're going to let everybody in every school district make up their own minds about what they ought to do. We're not going to provide any PPE. We're not going to tell people to wear masks. We're not going to say whether you should be indoors or outdoors. We're not going to say much. So, hey, folks, you're on your own. Um, I, that's, the, that's the political approach to a global pandemic, which thankfully is not surging in New Hampshire as it is in so, so much of the country. But it leaves people wondering, what's a responsible parent, what's a responsible school district to do? Um, and from an epidemiological and modeling standpoint, is there anything you know from your work that helps inform that answer uh, in a way that you're not hearing? Um, I, I guess, you know, as I said in the first segment, I think it's a, it's a, it's a pity that one of the major gaps of understanding about COVID-19 is about the role that kids play in transmission, because I think understanding that would, if we understood that better, we would be able to answer this question and provide better guidance to governmental leaders so that they could provide more clear guidance to schools. And I think, um, you know, these policymakers, I don't envy their position at all right now. They're trying to make hard political decisions and policy recommendations in a polarized political environment when the science is fuzzy. And that's a really hard thing to do. Uh, and, you know, in terms of our, so, you know, I think that we are still missing um, key pieces of data that would help us model this better. Um, and I also think as a country, and I'm generalizing here, because I think there are pockets where this is happening better than other places, but, um, you know, having better systems that all where we're testing more and getting quick results from testing, I think would make go a long way to making me feel sort of personally better about putting uh, putting my kids in a system if I were feeling like um, you know, there was a lot of testing that could be happening quickly and getting results quickly. So it seems like one of the things you're saying is that it's really hard to contend with the degree of uncertainty, the degree of medical and scientific uncertainty that exists uh, around any disease, but especially this novel one that we're dealing with now. I, I wonder if another challenge, how do you deal with the challenge of modeling people's less than um, smart behavior um, and our public health and, and political systems less than ideal behavior? I, I'm reminded of um, the line from This is Spinal Tap, that you can't exactly dust for vomit. And it, it seems like it must be hard from your standpoint to model for stupid, um, to model for people are not going to wear masks and they are going to cluster together and they are going to go to bars. How, how do you account for that in trying to figure out what's going on right now and what's likely to happen next? So it's a really good question. I, um, I, I think what a lot of groups, what a lot of modeling groups do is um, essentially throw out a couple different 
scenarios. So you, they might have sort of one core model that they're using to generate, to sort of estimate what's happening right now and predict what's going to happen over the next few weeks. But they'll say, all right, here's, here's our, our model, make some assumptions about how transmission works, how long the disease incubates, all this stuff. And then, but then, and then we have a couple different flavors of our model. One is the, we do this perfectly. We, everybody wears their masks. Everybody stays six feet away. Nobody goes to bars. Everything is closed down. And then there's a sort of another flavor that's, well, we do all of this. We say we're going to do all this, but then it's not perfectly executed. And then there's a third flavor that's sort of like a worst case scenario and where it's like nobody, you know, very few people are doing this. There's low compliance. And there are ways to sort of build in those different kinds of assumptions into models. And, um, and you see, you know, maybe one week out, those models are all still pretty similar. But then the moment you start looking at the projections from those models three and four weeks out, they start to diverge because the way their model is set up, those different assumptions really do make a difference in those in those particular models. So, um, comparatively, uh, uh, um, I'm thinking back to the 2009 H1N1 outbreak. You, you uh, led investigations into that outbreak. Um, how how does COVID uh, work compared to the H1N1 or other seasonal uh, influenza? outbreaks that you've studied uh, and that you monitor. And, and, and can you tell us why we've seen such a resurgence um, in the last few weeks concentrated in the Sun Belt? Um, let, me, let me tackle the first part of that question first. So I think, I think one of the things that makes COVID-19 so persistent and so hard and so frustrating from the perspective of, a, of public health control is that it can be spread when people are not symptomatic or have very mild symptoms. And that's a key difference with influenza, which is people think is maybe a little bit infectious before you get symptoms, but that's not, it's seen that like you are mostly infectious when you are, have a lot of symptoms and you have, you have a lot of snot, you're, you're coughing. And that's, that's when, that's when you're, a lot of your transmission happens. So if you isolate infected, or sorry, if you isolate symptomatic people, you're going to stop a lot of transmission. And that's really different in COVID-19. What they're seeing is that people, even before they know they're sick can be transmitting. And so that's why just isolating symptomatic people, which can be a fairly sort of relatively speaking an easy thing to do, um, that's not enough for COVID-19. Um, and it's similar, you know, with another, another sort of recent infectious disease, like uh, even with something like Ebola, which is obviously a really different beast than either flu or, or COVID-19. Um, but again, it's like, it's really obvious when somebody's infectious because they're, you, you know, it's like there, you can only get infectious from bodily fluids and that, and so it's really easy to sort of stop chains of transmission. And it's just really hard to stop chains of transmission with COVID-19. And that's why it's, I think, such a persistent problem. Um, um, the question about the Sunbelt, I, um, you know, I, feel like I sort of need to punt on that. There's so, you know, there's so many factors tied up here. There are political factors. There are um, factors of places that I think were a little too quick to open up and when things weren't fully calmed down. 
Um, they didn't follow carefully a sort of phase set of, you know, the sort of phase one, phase two things. And I think, I think we're, those we're all paying the price for, for, for some of that. You know, I, I know Matt has the next question, but I just quickly to follow up what, what, what strikes me uh, about what you've said is the issue about asymptomatic transmission and the distinction between asymptomatic transmission with COVID and generally symptomatic transmission with other infectious diseases. Because I don't think that that point, which we've read about or heard about, uh, certainly read about, I don't think that point has been made strongly enough by policy leaders to help explain to people uh, the measures that may be necessary to try to stop the spread of the disease. And it's also one of those, one of those facts that's very difficult for people to come to grips with. Uh, it's just very hard to understand that I may not have any symptoms, I may feel fine, I may never even become symptomatic with the symptoms of the disease, but if I'm carrying the virus, even dormant, I am a threat to people around me. It's, that's very hard for people to understand. Yeah. If, you know, actually, if, if, you, you anticipated exactly my next question, which was, I think, which, which was, let's talk masks for a second. Um, you know, in, in light of what Paul is saying, um, what about the efficacy of masks? Is, is this where mask wearing comes into the equation? So first of all, I, I want to just make one small uh, distinction about this idea of asymptomatic transmission. So I think there, and this is a confusing point, you know, this is a, the WHO screwed up messaging a, a few weeks or a month ago about this. Um, there's a distinction to be made I, between what people call pre-symptomatic transmission, which is you are about to become sick. And in those sort of one or two days before you get sick, um, you can be spreading. And then what some people then refer to as asymptomatic transmission is transmission from somebody who is doesn't have symptoms and will never have symptoms. And I, I think what the guidance from WHO is saying now is that asymptomatic transmission, that is symptomatic transmission from an individual who never will develop symptoms, it, it does not play a very large role in the in the in the pandemic. But what they are seeing is that pre-symptomatic transmission, that is people who go on to be symptomatic. So they do develop a fairly active disease, but it's those few days beforehand where they're, they can wreak havoc by infecting other people when they don't know they have it. And so I think, you know, this obviously does, it ties directly into mask wearing because I think you're right. The public health, public health messaging here needs to be that um, you can spread this even if you don't think you're sick. And, um, and when you wear a mask, you're protecting other people. You're protecting not just the people you love and care about who are um, you know, in your immediate circle, but also um, that you're protecting people who, you, anyone who you're interacting with. And that it's not because you're trying to do this to protect yourself and you're sort of stopping things from coming in, but really it's that you're stopping 
things that you might have from going out. And, um, you know, I, I haven't looked in a lot of detail about the, like the detailed effectiveness of masks, but I think the sense right now is that it's better than nothing. There are a lot of places that are, have held COVID-19 down where mask wearing is just routine. It's an accepted cultural thing that happens. Um, people aren't self-conscious about it. There's not this hang up that people have about, you know, being free in the U S um, and like it's impinging on our freedom. Um, and, uh, you know, I just think wearing, wearing really is caring. It's important to do it. And um, even if you feel silly doing it, I just think it's the right thing to do. This is Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com. We're podcast on Google, Stitcher, and iTunes. We're talking with Professor Nick Wright, the Associate Professor of Biostatistics at UMass, whose Reich Lab helps us understand the statistics, data science, and epidemiology of infectious diseases. He's advised the White House Task Force um, on coronavirus. He's talking with us about all things COVID-19 related. Uh, before we take a break, I'll just say, love your neighbor, wear a mask. If you care about someone else, wear your mask. It's not about you, it's about them. You're going to be a patriot by wearing your mask and helping out others. We'll take a short break and we'll be right back with more Off the Record. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXL AM and FM, streamed live over the interwebs at nhtalkradio.com, where you can find our show's archive for your binge listening pleasure. Relive the glories of the past. Catch up on all the interesting conversations that Matt and I have had with folks about politics and what it means to be an American today. Uh, we are talking with Professor Nick Reich, Professor of Biostatistics at UMass. Uh, professor Reich uh, helps us understand what is going on with the epidemiology, the statistics, the data, the modeling around COVID-19. Um, he is, uh, he's the guy who really gets it. And what we're hearing is that COVID-19 is complex, that science doesn't always work as quickly as we'd like it to, that there are a lot of questions still to be asked and answered. Matt, take it away. So I wanna take a look at one of the trends that we've seen in the last few weeks, which is this resurgence, the mostly concentrated in the Sun Belt, although as you pointed out, it can be county to county, um, so not exclusively there. Um, and one of the interesting patterns that we've seen is that the case rate has really exploded, but the death rate hasn't exploded in tandem. Now, in the last couple of days, it does appear that there's been an uptick there, but do you have any thoughts about why we are seeing a little bit of a divergence in those two rates? Is it just that deaths are, are lagging um, by three or four weeks? Um, is, is there something about a, a drift in the, in the virus 
where it's becoming more contagious but less deadly, as apparently sometimes happens. Do you, what's what's your sense of what's going on there? So uh, let's see. I I do have some thoughts some thoughts about this. So I think first of all, um, as I mentioned earlier, deaths are a lagging indicator, as and you just mentioned that as well. So you know cases that occurred several weeks ago, those people who showed up with positive tests a few weeks ago, they're not going to show up as confirmed deaths until somewhere between two and four weeks later. So there is, there, deaths are a lagging indicator. I would expect them to be lagging. That said, um, that, that spread does seem to be increasing a little bit uh, in, in recent weeks. And I think um, uh, the explanations that I would have for that, that I, I think are sort of the, the simplest explanations are one, that we are pr probably picking up more of the cases now than we were a month ago. Um, so we are, we are, we're doing more testing. We're probably catching, um, a higher number of milder cases than we were a few months ago when we were, uh, you know, testing was still getting ramped up and we were only testing the very sickest people. Um, so I think that certainly is playing, plays a contributing role here. Um, there's another factor is that there's at least a trend towards a slightly, uh, a higher fraction of the cases in the last month have been in a younger age group and uh, younger people are less likely to have um, other, th other things that are making them sick or that would predispose them to have a real severe infection. And uh, this is something that we've seen across the world with COVID-19 is that the mortality rates uh, increase in higher age groups and in age groups that are more sort of starting out already a bit sicker. So, um, so I think it, in my mind, it's sort of a combination. Those are the sort of two leading explanations or maybe three leading explanations. One, we're lagging a little bit, deaths are lagging. Two, we're picking up more of the cases that we're seeing now are more mild. And three, more of the cases are happening in younger people and not as many of them will go on to have really severe disease. Uh, Nick, some of the people who I have heard from who have um, gotten COVID-19 uh, and survived, um, uh, some of whom have been in hospital, some of whom have not, have described for me uh, symptoms that have um, symptoms and complications that have lingered for months uh, after their um, uh, supposedly free of the disease. Um, those symptoms have included um, uh, sort of fo fog in the brain, um, extraordinary uh, fatigue uh, that has lasted, lasted a while, uh, some of the fog for some people have been memory issues and some confusion. Um, some people have reported uh, pain, uh, extreme pain in various, uh, various parts of their bodies. Um, 
is do you is there any modeling um, or statistical analysis of uh, the after effects of uh, the disease that you know of is is that something that people are looking at to try to predict in any way that if you have the this kind of this degree of the disease then you can expect this as as an after effect or anything like that. I, so this is not an area that I know that much about. Um, I I guess I I would say I'm I'm sure people are looking into this because it's an important it's an important piece of the puzzle. And certainly there are these, I mean, I've seen these anecdotal reports sort of similar to what you're saying. Um, I would say that I think it's still pretty early. I mean, again, you know, if we're talking about lingering effects, uh, you know, we don't know anything about what this does to people six months out because it's, you know, basically just been around for six months. Um, so there's, you know, we literally have no data on that question. Um, uh, so I think it's just sort of too early to tell. I wouldn't be surprised if there are some long-term complications that arise. Um, but I also wouldn't jump to, to, to conclusions too quickly about a few anecdotal reports, I guess. That's my, mm -hmm. that's my sense. So you alluded earlier to some of the difficulty of trying to incorporate the range of people's behaviors, the range of potential outcomes into your models. And you described that what modelers do is they create scenarios, um, some that are more optimistic, some that are a little bit more pessimistic on outcomes. So. I recognize that there's probably very limited, there's a, a wide confidence interval, very, very limited amount of certainty about what's gonna happen over the remainder of this year. But looking at that range of uncertainty um, and the trend lines of where we are now, what is your sense of what, what the range looks like for outcomes over the remainder of this year? Let's, let's define it just as over the remainder of this year um how bad versus sort of what's the what's the upside optimistic scenario that's a really really tough question so you know let me, let me start by saying that the models that we look at um so you know so one of the projects that i've been working closely on over the last few months is creating this thing that we call the covid 19 forecast hub and we have uh over 20 models coming in from over 20 different research groups and uh, around the world. And they're all trying to make predictions about cases and hospitalizations and deaths in the US at the national, state and county level. Um, we, so my group serves as sort of a hub. We, at, we collect all of these forecasts, we aggregate them, we build a single sort of ensemble model that combines them all into a single prediction. Um, when we do that, we only create the model to look four weeks out. And that's because at the moment, we don't, we feel like that's sort of the, the sort of scientifically responsible horizon to be looking at in the same way that you wouldn't trust a weather forecast that was looking four weeks out 
um, or, you know, two months out or something, you're not going to, uh, we feel like these models are really only trustworthy about four weeks into the future because past that, who knows what's going to happen. There could be major, major shifts and major changes based on policy decisions, new treatments, new vaccines, whatever. So, so I, sort of prefacing my answer to your longer term question by saying that really, I think models are fairly limited in what they're going to tell us much past a month out. Um, um, my second partial answer to your question is that uh, in February, before any of these computational models were saying anything, we asked a bunch of experts uh, repeatedly over the starting in February and running through early May, we asked a bunch of modeling experts how many people they thought would die in the US from COVID-19 who would not have otherwise died by the, in, in, by the end of 2020. And consistently across four or five times we asked this question, the responses were the sort of best guess answers were between 150,000 and 250,000 with um, sort of best case scenario, sorry, sorry, with worst case scenarios up as high as like a million. So, um, you know, I, I, in retrospect, we had no idea if these were, I mean, the first time we asked these people, there were basically like 100 confirmed cases in the U.S. So it was really people predicting hundreds of thousands of deaths in the U.S. And now looking back on it, I feel like those predictions were actually really prescient. I mean, they're at the moment, I feel like going to, going to be fairly accurate, um, you know, thinking yeah. something around 200,000 deaths in the U.S. by the end of this year. Um, that that to me seems like a fairly reasonable uh, ballpark estimate um, as long as things don't get dramatically better or dramatically worse. So we're coming uh, to the end of our time. Uh, and um, given what you know, given what you're seeing, uh, what uh, advice would you give to people about their own personal behavior, about their activities, about uh, the risks? Uh, what, can, what can we leave people with that, um, that uh, might, might sound like intelligent advice from somebody who understands how infectious disease works as opposed to a politician who's trying to save his or her bacon? <laughs> well, you know, I think the most important things are just these really simple things that you hear from public health officials every day. You know, and they're and you know they sound like these sort of parental advice, and ultimately they are they are sort of right. But wash your hands, wear a mask, think carefully about um, you know be judicious about your the time that you spend indoors, especially in groups. I mean, these are these are common sense things, and the more we follow as a society these things, the faster we will get back to some semblance of normalcy. And there's no guarantee that we'll get there soon, maybe not even this year. But I think that's that's the only way that we're going to get there is by people taking the, taking this seriously, realizing that it's not seasonal flu, that this is really has the potential to make a lot of people really, really sick and how many people it already has made sick. And, um, and just to do these common sense things. Well, folks... It's Off the Record with Matt Robeson and Paul Hodes here on WKXLAM and FM. We've been talking with Professor Nick Wright, uh, who models infectious disease and is 
has been working on COVID-19. Nick, thank you so much for joining us. It's been a real pleasure. Thanks for having me. Great. We're going to take a short break. We'll be back to wrap up in just a bit. Don't go away. We're back. It's Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM, streamed live over the internet at nhtalkradio.com for your binge listening pleasure. Well, Matt, that was uh, a deep dive uh, with a smart guy into some science instead of the usual political blather that you and I engage in. It's, it's kind of refreshing uh, to hear from somebody who really understands infectious disease as opposed to a politician or policymaker who's guessing. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I just hope that uh, people take the, uh, the information and the guidance to heart. It sounds like common sense is unfortunately an uncommon virtue these days. So Nick left us with some pretty sound basic advice. Wash your hands, wear a mask, uh, watch out for gathering in groups inside. Basic, smart, common sense things we can all uh, take to heart. And for any of you who have been resisting wearing a mask, just remember, it's not about you. It's about your neighbor. It's about your family. It's about your loved ones. It's about people you care about. You are doing your patriotic duty. You are being a good person when you wear a mask because you're helping others. Uh, this is Off the Record with Paul Hodes and Matt Robeson on WKXLAM and FM. Thank you to the sponsors of Keep the Station on the Air. Thank you to our listeners. We'll be back next week with more Off the Record.